Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Alfred the Great, Athelstan, Henry the First, Edward the Fourth, Henry the Eighth, and Charles the Second. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. And uh, welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II, and we are now in the playoffs. The playoffs. This is Rex Factor history. Yeah, so we had 18 monarchs to whom we gave the prestigious title of the Rex Factor, mm-hmm. and we're going to have uh, three groups of six in which we'll look at each of them, kind of like a normal Rex Factor episode mm-hmm. with the biography and then all the factors, but except this time, rather than one monarch each time, we're doing six. And they're playing each other. So... After this, at the end of this episode, Ali and I will uh, rank the monarchs in our chosen order. We won't tell each other, we won't tell you, and then there will be an online survey in which you, the listeners, can vote. Yeah. So your vote for your top three in each of the groups. We'll post the link on uh, Twitter, at RexFactorPod, on the RexFactor Facebook site, and also on our new blog, which you should visit during this period, rexfactor.wordpress.com. And if you go to the playoffs and voting tab, you will get the links to all the surveys. Yeah, and so then the public's vote will be one college, I'll be a college, Graham will be a college. And the top three will go through yeah. to the semi-finals. Yeah. So this is Group A, and have you heard, we've got Alfred the Great, Athelstan, Henry the First, Edward the Fourth, Henry the Eighth, and Charles the Second. It's a killer group. It's, and we've probably the group of death mm. that we've had thus far. So, the biographies for each of the six monarchs, just to give us a sense of their life and reign and what mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. Alfred the Great, and we'll do it in chronological order, no particular preference to this, just... Yeah, and for my benefit, mostly. Indeed. So, first up, we've got Alfred the Great, born in 849, which was 1,165 years ago. Crikey. And he came to the throne in 871, when he was 22 years old. That is really young. As a context to Alfred's reign, um, there wasn't actually an England in existence at this point. Rather, there were lots of kingdoms. So you had things like Mercia, Northumbria, and Wessex, which is the one that Alfred mm. ruled. And this was sort of south of England and also the southwest. And the key issue for them were the Vikings. Initially, they just did you know, quick raids Classic in and Viking out. Stuff. Exactly. But now they're starting to actually conquer. And Wessex is the last kingdom standing. Other kings either get. Uh, exiled or blood-eagled. Oh, yeah, that's gross, isn't it? Very grim. The leading Viking for Alfred is a man called Guthrum, who takes charge of a large army um, in 877, and then in 878 he seizes the uh, the town of Chippenham in a surprise attack, forces Alfred out into the marshlands, Mm. to the Somerset levels, which I was going to say have since been drained, but of course they are now currently, They're currently well underwater. Flooded. Yeah. And you may have seen Athelney mentioned in uh, in news reports because that's where he set up his little fort. Oh right. Uh, this is also where we get the legend of Alfred in the Cakes, where he was sheltering the house of a cowherd and the wife was making loaves. And Alfred, distracted by all of the stuff that was going on, didn't keep an eye on it. Cakes burnt, and the woman scolds him for it. You, I, I kind of have sympathy for him. You know, he's hiding <laughs> from Vikings and she's telling him off about the baking. Got a lot on his plate. He does. He burnt cakes mostly. Exactly, but of course the metaphor is that he took his eye off the kingdom, didn't protect it. Oh, you see, I'd missed that. Right. Okay. Exactly. Um, However, it all turns out well for Alfred. He does have some people loyal to him in Wiltshire and Hampshire, and he gets an underground network going, Mm. links together. They rendezvous when they've got uh, sufficient uh, army organised, 
and then defeat Guthrum in the Battle of Eddington, and Alfred is restored to the kingdom. And having won the war, he then wins the peace. Uh, strength and defences of Wessex with the Burrs, which are these fortified towns, so the Vikings aren't able to get in and out quite as easily, and embarks on an education programme after years of stagnation thanks to all the Viking attacks. So, he dies in 899 at 50 years old. England not quite fully formed. We've still got a Danelaw in the north and east of England, but he's now got this secure England in the south and a vision established of England. Mm-hmm. And then his grandson, Athelstan... Yes, here we go, the next one. ...is the one who is the first proper king of England. He's born in 893, 44 years after Alfred, and comes to the throne in 924, when he's 32 years old. His father, Edward the Elder, and his aunt, Ethelfred of Mercia, expanded on Alfred's burrs to bring Wessex more and more territory so that they now control Mercia, East Anglia, and Essex. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so Alfred only got Wessex back? Wessex, London, and the south and southwest. So Mercia is ruled by Alfred's daughter and son-in-law. Right. So he doesn't. he's not king of it, but yeah. he is he's clearly predominant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Athelstan, uncertain legitimacy, his mother hadn't been acknowledged as queen by his father, but he was invested with royal regalia by Alfred in a public ceremony. Oh, right. Okay. And he was brought up by his aunt, who is a very impressive woman. But when he becomes king, he is the one that unifies England, successfully invades York, so he's the first Saxon to actually rule mm. the northern city, brings the Cumbrian kings to heel, and then conquers Cornwall. So he's got now pretty much yeah, you England. See, that, I wrote this on the blog. I think that's what I expected of Alfred. Hmm. Mm. Alfred the Sufficient... Athelstan the Great. Well, because of course, Athelstan, you can argue, is building on the shoulder of giants. Mm. Athelstan wouldn't be able to do all of that if he didn't actually have this massive work that had been done before. Yeah. Alfred, of course, is restricted to a marsh at one point, and yet... Yeah, but he got, he, he got put in his little marsh, didn't he? He did, but... Oh, we'll get there, we'll, we'll get, get there. there. Yeah. Um, he also establishes dominance over Wales and Scotland, but Constantine II of Scotland in 937 allies with Welsh and Northumbrians and sort of Irish Danes in this grand alliance against Athelstan. So then there's this epic battle at Brunanburh in which Athelstan is victorious and it cements Saxon hegemony mm. in England. Yeah, that was a big epic one, wasn't it? And he dies two years later, though, in 939, at the age of 46. But he's at the height of his power, and he lays his rather unblemished path towards this sort of Saxon golden age of the 960s and 970s. Mm. England is there. Okay, it's on the map. It's a power to be reckoned with. It is. Unfortunately, in 1066, it gets conquered by the Normans. Jack. And then we get our next monarch in this group, Henry I. He's born a couple of years later, in 1068, and comes to the throne in 1100, mm. also at the age of 32. So William the Conqueror, his father, split England to William Rufus and Normandy to Robert, um, his other sons. Henry didn't initially get any lands at all, mm. just a bit of money. Because he's third son then. Third son, right, yeah. or third surviving son. Uh, but Rufus is killed uh, hunting in the New Forest while Robert is in the Crusades, so Henry rushes to Winchester, secures the treasury and gets crowned as king. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty sleazy work. Robert, when he comes back, seen by many as the rightful heir and invades England in 1101. Yeah. Henry gets the support of the nobles, makes a peace with Robert, but after a few years, relations break down. But Henry then invades Normandy, mm. captures Robert at the Battle of Tarshabury, and is now secure. What does he do with Robert? He imprisons him for the rest of his life. Mm, does he kill him? He doesn't kill him, but oh, he is there for about okay. 30 years. Oh, crumbs. Yeah. Right, poor play. He does still have another threat, William Cleto, who is the son of Robert. However, 1118-19, to 19, Henry removes Cleto's support and has his own son, William Adelin, made Duke of Normandy. 
Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, in 1120, Adelan drowns in the White Ship disaster, oh, yeah. sailing yeah. home to England. Hmm. Henry breaks down with grief because this is the only person, the only legitimate son that he actually has. Yeah. And he's only got one more legitimate child. Uh oh. Which is a girl, mm. Matilda. 1126, the courtiers swore to uphold her succession. Yeah. And then I imagine everything goes well for Matilda. Well, Henry dies in 1135, the age of 67, pretty mm. decent age. He was still quite fit and healthy, but against doctors' orders, he ate a surfeit of lampreys. Yeah, they blew in lampreys. And died. But civil war followed him, the anarchy, the succession uh, was not yep. secure. Yeah. We now skip ahead quite a bit yep. to the midway monarch, Edward IV. He's exactly, is well, he? not exactly midway between Alfred and modern day, but of all the monarchs, he is the wow, most middle point. Wow, I'd have put it much later than that. Uh, he was born in 1442 and comes to the throne in 1461, so he is 19 at the time. That's even younger. Even younger, very good maths. <laughs> Edward IV's father, yeah. Richard, Duke of York, yeah. has a descent from the second and the fourth son of Edward III. So a really solid claim. claim. Right. Okay. And Henry VI, who is the actual king, has mental health problems, often incapacitated. Consequently, there's rivalries at court for who can dominate him. Yeah. And that's where we end up with open warfare, the Wars of the Roses. Uh, Richard, Duke of York, has himself named as Henry's heir, despite Henry having his own son. Oh. But then York is killed in an ambush at the Battle of Wakefield, leaving Edward as the Yorkist heir, yeah. just a teenager. Uh, Edward, however, links up with the Earl of Warwick, marches into London, and is acclaimed as king. End of. Well, it's not going to be that oh. easy, of course. Lancastrians preparing for a big campaign, so he fought an epic battle at Towton, destroys the Lancastrian army, sends Henry VI and his family into exile, and now he seems secure. Yeah. End of. Well, again, not quite. Warwick is largely dominating government. Oh, yeah, Kingmaker Warwick. Warwick the Kingmaker. Yeah. Um, he was planning to have Edward married a French princess, but when Edward was meant to agree, he in fact secretly admitted to having married Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah. A Lancastrian widow with no political or diplomatic benefit whatsoever. Mm. Leads to tension with Warwick, particularly when all the Woodville siblings get promoted at court. Warwick allies with one of Edward's brothers, George Duke of Clarence, Briefly imprisons him, had to be released. Warwick goes into exile in France, but then makes a deal with Henry the Sixth's wife, Margaret of Anjou, comes back, kicks Edward out. And who puts her on the throne? Henry the Sixth is back. The chat with mental health problems. He's back on, mm. puppet ruler. But a year later, 1471, Edward returns, kills Warwick at the Battle of Barnet, chases the Lancastrian forces to Tewkesbury, where Henry the Sixth's son is killed, and then, as you put it, at the Tower of London, Henry VI himself is put to sleep. <laughs> End of. End of. The okay. rest of the reign, he's completely dominant, able to build the peace. Dies in 1483, only 41 years old. He either caught a cold fishing or his indulgence caught up with him. Mm. So he was dominant, but his son's minority, Edward V, very short-lived and he's usurped by his uncle, Richard III. Oh, yeah. His maternal grandson is the next one we're going to do, Henry VIII. His, his maternal grandson? Maternal. So through the... the mother? Yeah. Uh, I would have put them miles apart. Just in my head, it seems like... They seem later. very distant. Because but... he's always got armour on Edward IV, yeah. and he's always fighting. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, Henry VIII is born in four, uh, 1491, and comes to the throne in 1509, just on the verge of his 18th birthday, so he's actually 17. He's younger again. He's younger. He's the youngest of the group. Oh. Richard III was killed at the Battle of Bosworth, and Henry VII, the Tudor... Uh, king establishes a new dynasty, marries Elizabeth of York, who is mm. Edward IV's daughter, hence the oh, relationship yes. between Edward and Henry. Henry's older brother Arthur had married the Spanish infanta Catherine of Aragon, but he died soon afterwards, making Henry 
and mm. heir mm. to the throne. Almost 18, tall and handsome, very popular, married Catherine of Aragon straight away and celebrated lavishly. Mm. As you said, did. 20 years, didn't do very much, but we then had the king's great matter. Mm. The marriage only produced one girl and no sons, and he began to believe that maybe the marriage was unlawful because he'd married his brother's widow. Right, and that was that caused a lack of sons. In Leviticus, it said mm. you shouldn't do that. He also has fallen in love for Anne Boleyn, but unfortunately, the Pope won't grant him an annulment. But, and that's all based on politics. It's, all based on yeah. European politics. So we have the Reformation. Henry VIII breaks from the Church of Rome in the Act of Supremacy, declares himself head of a new Church of England, divorces Catherine, and marries Anne Boleyn. Easy. Except that Anne only has a girl, so in 1536 oh. she is executed for adultery. Quite right. He then marries Jane Seymour, sees off a full-scale northern rebellion, the Pilgrimage of Grace, that oh, set yeah. about the dissolution of the monasteries. A son, Edward, is finally born in 1537, but unfortunately Jane Seymour dies soon afterwards. Henry then gets married to Anne of Cleves, not very happy about it, oh, yeah. gets rid of her, executes Thomas Cromwell. He then marries Catherine Howard, who was only 17, but again, executed for <laughs> adultery. And finally, Catherine Parr, who tried to promote Protestantism and was almost executed. But Before Henry died. Thankfully, she was able to negotiate her survival. Henry dies in 1547, only 55, but that is actually quite old for the time old, yeah. and uh, quite old for the group. So he leaves a son, Edward VI, who is a minor, but... That succession is successful, at least in the sense that mm. no one is trying to topple Edward. Finally, a Stuart king. Oh, come on. This, this is a highlight. Here we go. Charles II. Born in 1630 and comes to the throne on his 30th birthday mm-hmm. in 1660. Parliament increasingly powerful now over yep. the monarchy in granting taxation, partly as a result of Henry's reign. They assert their rights against the crown and they're vehemently anti-Catholic. Charles I, who was Charles II's father, believed in the divine right of kings, ultimately leading to the English Civil War, and in 1649, his own execution and England becoming a republic. Charles II was made King of Scotland, but didn't last very long. He was defeated by Cromwell at the Battle of Worcester and spent six weeks as a fugitive, hiding up a tree, dressing up, acting, sightseeing at Stonehenge. He finally goes into exile for nine years, yeah. uh, but then when Cromwell dies in 1658 and his son Richard was removed a year later, there's fears of more civil war and they decide the best thing is just to have a king again. Yeah, Everyone knows where they stand. Forget it ever happened. So Charles comes back. A restoration. Streets filled from Canterbury to London, people celebrating and the partying mm. is back. Yeah. There were great events in this period, not all good. The Great Plague in 1665, the yeah, last wave of the Black Death. And then in 1666, the Great Fire of London. Yeah. Which much of the medieval city was destroyed. The big thing right at the end, where things really built to a, a crisis, was um, over the exclusion, or the potential exclusion, of his brother, James, who was an avowed Catholic. Mm. Parliament dead set against this, and increased intentions following a man called Titus Oates, claiming bogusly that there were all these Catholic conspiracies. Mm. Leads to repression, leads to tension. 1679 to 81, three bills in Parliament to exclude James from the succession, all of which Charles uh, bats back. They overplay their hand, Charles is able to get rid of his rivals, stays firm, and James succeeds him. Charles dies, 1685, 54 years old, a stable financial position, so he ruled without Parliament for the final years, but suffers an unexpected stroke. Mm, He's brilliant. So, that is a refresh, but now we're going to look at them factor by factor and really debate who is good for what. Battleliness! First up, Alfred the Great. Alfred the Sufficient. Well, we gave him 11th Vatilinus. I've got to say, he was really undermarked when you look at actually what he did. 871, we've got the Battle of Ashdown, where he and his brother were fighting the Vikings uh, near Uffington White Horse. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, right, yeah. Talk, yeah. There were two Viking divisions, two Saxons, but his brother was still taking mass. So Alpha took them both on at the same time in a shield wall going uphill. Wow. Said to have fought like a wild boar. Bit, bit plump. Bit oh, well, yeah. Plump, hairy. Very dangerous. <laughs> uh, held them off, and then when his brother finally joined in, they sealed victory. The great battle for Alpha, though, is Eddington. Yes, this was absolutely all or nothing when he was emerging from Athelney. He rode over the top of a ridge near Guthrum's position at dawn and then charged down. Really big That's battle. That's a bit, a bit like uh, Lord of the Rings. It is quite, yes. What's that? The, the uh, two towers when they relieve the siege. Battle of Holmes Deep, or whatever it is. Helm's Deep, Helm's yeah. Deep, yeah. yeah. See, I do know <laughs> Lord of the Rings stuff. <laughs> you feigned all this indifference. Uh, really big, hard battle. Alfred wins. This is arguably one of the most important battles in English history because if Alfred loses, there are no more Saxon kings. The Vikings will have conquered England. So everything mm. that comes after this battle is reliant upon Alfred winning. And yeah. let's remember, previous kings have been blood-eagled. Yeah. So if Alfred loses, yeah. he's, he's going to lose in, badly. He's in trouble, isn't yeah. he? We also have Burrs. The problem was that the Saxons couldn't rotate military service when the Vikings dashed in and out. Mm. So they had the same army going really, really tired. But Alfred gets these fortified towns no more than 20 miles apart from each other, so you're never more than a day's march away. Right. So now the Vikings come in, find a well-defended town, and then after a day, there are more troops attacking them. Uh. And wherever the Vikings go, there'll be another well-defended town, Alfred's and the Saxons can just reinforce. They've yeah. got food, they've got a base, where the Vikings are just harried all over the place. That is clever. It's very clever and it works very well. He also reorganises the army so that half are always at home, half are always on uh, military service. That's brilliant. Rotate a little bit more effectively. And also we see uh, the start of a Saxon navy. Yeah. Because Alfred like recognised that. that's the yeah. strength for the Vikings. Yeah. They can come far inland. So he has his own ships built to his design. About a hundred, perhaps, at the end of his reign, or into Edward's mm. reign, and had some success in actually leading men in naval action against the Vikings. They actually had some coastal battles. That's pretty awesome on the ship. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So that's pretty good going for Vikingness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised at eleven, but he was the first one we reviewed. So I think yeah. we were conscious that we had people like had somewhere to go, to come and yeah. we didn't want to go mm. too high against him. He did lose a bit early on and, of course, did get kicked out. And he did get put in his little marsh. Put in his marsh. He wasn't the founder of the Royal Navy, as Victorians say, and as well as successes, he also had defeat. So it's not like an all-conquering navy. Um, And, as you picked up on, he was king over the whole English people except for that part which was under Danish rule. So he acknowledged the Danelaw, so he hasn't got the whole of England. Yeah, he's only got the south left. Well, the south, the south-west, London... He's got dominance over Mercia. It's, it's about half the, and half, really. It's always the left we get, isn't it? The left, yeah. We're very good at the, the left. We've only got the right of a country. We never just have the right of England or the right of France. The right of France would be much harder to acquire than the left of France in England's perspective, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Weird. Anyway, next up we have Athelstan, mm. who was proper, proper battle Yeah, probably good. 97, he did something of a blitzkrieg, where he became the first Saxon ruler to rule over York, where he made a rapid attack when the Danish ruler died. A few months later, all the northern kings submit to him. He then crushes the West Welsh, or the Cornish Britons. The left Welsh. Although the Welsh are generally on the left. (laughs) They are, yeah. The left left. And uh, April uh, 928, he rules all of England. But he has Welsh... uh, They pay homage to Well, between Northumbria and Cornwall, he also defeats rebellious Welsh kings, so the five who are still there acknowledge him Mm. as their superior. Yeah. 
and that all takes place from ninety seven to April ninety eight. So in wow. within a year. Yeah, and he's got a, a, a navy as well. He does have a navy yeah. as well, which he puts to use in nine three four against Scotland when that old. Oh, Constantine yeah, rebelled. Yeah. Athelstan led an army which went as far as the south coast of Aberdeen while his fleet attacked Cape Neth. Well, the top. 939, he actually sent an English fleet to Flanders, which is our first ever intervention on the continent. The BEF. Indeed. Wow. Uh, but the biggie, of course, is Brunenburg in 937, where Constantine has this sort of grand coalition mm. against him. We don't know where the battle was, but we do know it was epically fought and Athelstan won the victory. Athelstan lost two cousins and two earls and a bishop, while the enemy lost five kings and seven earls. Sounds like a game of chess. Um, in 980s, apparently, it was still referred to as the Great Battle. Mm. And uh, the Saxon, Anglo-Saxon Chronicle said that never before in this island, as the books of ancient historians tell us, was an army put to greater slaughter by the sword. Cool. Um, I mean, poor, poor chaps for that. Cool. Uh, so it's different to Alfred, like you said, because Alfred doesn't have the whole of England. Mm. He's not as completely predominant as Athelstan. Mm. But Athelstan is building on that which has already been He done. is, but it's just surprising, I think, that we remember Alfred the Great. You could ask anyone out in town yeah. who Alfred the Great was. They never know Alfred the Great, but they wouldn't necessarily have heard of Athelstan. I wouldn't be surprised if Alfred were the one who was forgotten by laying less exciting foundations. And it should be Athelstan the Great doing this amazing pulling together and work and building on it. Um, but, you know, that's where we are. What was the separation between them? There was... Crikey Moses, there were six points, in it? Yes, yeah, so we go 17 to Athelstan for being pretty predominant. In yeah, well, I, I agree with that now. I think I was right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think 11 for Alfred is definitely it's too a bit low, yeah. given all the stuff that he did. But it yeah. doesn't have to be just a no, it's not contest between, between the two of them. It's between all six. And next up was Henry I. He did a little bit of battling, um, a battle of Rouen in 1090. He helped his brother Robert put down a rebellion by Conan Pilatus. Robert retreated mm. unsuccessfully, but Henry fought on, killed Conan, put it all to bed. The battle of Tarshebray in 1106 was when Henry defeated his brother, Robert, mm. for the final time. Unusually, Henry and the knights dismounted for an infantry battle. Only lasted about an hour, and it was an overwhelming win for Henry. Why did he do that? Uh, I guess the terrain, maybe, yeah. or the conditions. He thought that would be easier and quicker. and Just showing off a bit. Showing off a bit. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of flair. Uh, Battle of Brimoul in 1119. Louis VI, the fat of France. He really was known. Supported William Cleto, who was the son of Robert, the rival for Henry. He invaded Normandy, but a decisive victory for Henry ended all mm. Cleto's hopes of rebellion. And he's big on diplomacy, Henry. He avoids uh, being deposed by Robert when he invaded England with a successful treaty. Yeah. And William Cleto, despite being supported by the King of France, is never able to really threaten Henry because he finance, Henry finances Cleto's rivals, undoes alliances, so Cleto never really gets to invade Normandy, never gets to be a threat. Yeah, good, good diplomacy. Good diplomacy, but this is battliness. Mm. And uh, it was said of Henry, he would rather contend by counsel than the sword. He conquered without bloodshed if he could, and if not, with as little as possible. Morally good. And good later later on, but you know we're quite early here. We want yeah. more than I do. He doesn't have any real territorial ambition, so he just effectively gets back to where William the Conqueror yeah, was. Yeah, consolidates them. Then he's defensive, and even the battles, nobles always get ransomed rather than killed. Mm. It's more like rich games. Tarshebray, very short, low on casualties, and pretty much nobody dies at Brumul. I mean, in some ways, he's the perfect king. Mm. He does battle when he needs to and does well. Yeah, but otherwise keeps things going. Mm. But we scored him 12, yeah, which I think is actually 
again, pretty good. Well, it's a good score, but it's probably a bit high for battliness. I mean, mm. actually, we've got very little there, haven't we? We've just got two battles, one of which no one really dies, the other one, not many die. Otherwise, yeah. he doesn't really expand territory, he doesn't do very much. Compared to Athelstan, oh, yeah. who goes around conquering everything, mm. compared to Alfred, who has to that, defeat the Vikings. Yeah. But yeah. Often, you know, he's, yeah. Not, he's not as good as Alfred, he's not as good as Athelstan. He may have been more capable if he needed to. Yeah, we can't mark him on that. But he didn't. But I do like it. I do like his reign. But that, I mean, that's the oh, overall thing. It's a battliness, yeah. Mm. Mm. However, Edward IV, rather better at mm. this sort of stuff. Mm. This is Wars of the Roses' absolute peak of all these medieval battles. Mm. And Edward is undefeated. Really? In them. He never actually loses a battle. What happens when he get, goes off, comes back, goes off? Well, we'll, we'll see there. In terms of the ones he does fight... Mortimer's Cross in 1461 was just after his father and brother had been killed. He was only 18. Mm. And on the morning of the battle, the par- a Parhelion appeared. What's that? It's where you s- it appears that there are three suns in the sky. Wow. Troops, a bit freaked out by that, <laughs> think this is a bad omen. He says, oh, no, it's a good omen. It's the Holy Trinity uh, and the three never. brothers of York. Yes. There are three of them. So it leads them to a victory. The biggest battle is at Towson in 1461. Something like three quarters of the English peerage fight in blizzard conditions. Yeah, Lancastrians couldn't see that their arrows weren't reaching the enemy, so the Yorkists were picking them up and firing them back. Mm. Hours of brutal hand-to-hand combat before the Yorkists finally win. About 30,000 killed. That's huge. So it's the bloodiest battle on English soil. That's amazing. And proportionately more casualties than at the Battle of the Somme. Edward said to have fought heroically in the thick of it, commanding his troops, maintaining morale, carrying wounded from the field. Mm. He then defeats Warwick the Kingmaker at the Battle of Barnet after coming back from exile. The thick fog, so weathers again, meant it was quite hard to see. And Castrians got confused, firing at each other. Oops. All goes wrong. Warwick gets killed, and again, Edward is victorious. And then a few weeks later, at Tewkesbury, uh, he pursues the Lancastrians, who are trying to get to Wales, mm. trying to get to the Severn, but he catches up with them, forces them to battle victorious again at Tewkesbury and that is it he destroys the Lancastrian forces um, three big battles and three yeah three well known battles I knew, I've, I mean, from a lay point of view I'd, I've, I'd heard of mm. all of those yeah and he wins them all yeah so how does he get to pose well initially as we said captured by Warwick without fighting and then Warwick gets troops together and Edward realises ah oh, this isn't very good and mm. heads off to okay Burgundy. so it's a tactical tactical but it means that he loses the throne without fighting a battle, mm. which is either good because, in terms of his battling averages, <laughs> yeah. he hasn't lost one. <laughs> yeah, the batting average, yeah. same time, yeah. But in terms of battliness, he's failed to defend his kingdom and he didn't even try. But I think, it was all, it was, as it was tactical, it was, he's a shrewd tactician and didn't lose lots of allies by fighting them, uh, by getting them killed unnecessarily. Mm. So ready for when he could win. Yeah. It's good, it's good. Um, he's also quite fortunate. The weather at Towton with the snow, the weather at Barnet with the fog. Mm. Both occasions, Yorkists are outnumbered. So on a sunny day... Yeah, they couldn't see how many the enemy were compared to them. Also, he never really does anything with Scotland, despite always promising to lead a campaign to deal with breaks and treaties. In France, 1475, he led a big campaign but ends up with peace in return for large pension, so he never actually fights. And uh, Louis the Eleventh of France boasted that he defeated the English with venison, pies and good wine. Seems fair enough. Seems a pleasant enough day, yeah. but it was expected yeah, that a strong he, king uh, would go off and yeah. take France. But he just stayed at home, yeah. yeah. 
But still, that's very good battling as for Edward the Oh, it's brilliant. He's yeah, probably up there with, in this group with Athelstan in terms of undefeated. Yeah. Once he's on the battlefield. Yeah, sorted. That is good. really very good, isn't it? Henry VIII, I yeah. think it's fair to say, is somewhat less Ooh. adept. He does have a couple of victories to his name. In 1513, he went on a campaign in France and they took the French cavalry by surprise in the Battle of the Spurs, in which basically the French cavalry just scarper, mm. chased off by the English. Also captures the towns of Turon and Tournay. And then 1544 led 40,000 troops into France and besieges successfully the city of Boulogne. Uh, bombardment and undermining. See the city captured. He wasn't a, uh, a warrior at this point, though, was he? He was more of a general. So that... More of a general. We also have military developments under Henry. Device forts along the coasts. Oh, yeah. Which are quite yeah, strategically yeah. placed. And he inherits it only a handful of ships, but he built 50 specialist warships during this period. Mary Rose, Mary Rose, one of them, so it's important in the start of the Navy. However, that's not an awful lot to go on. And actually, 1513 campaign, it's a very minor skirmish, the Battle of the Spurs. And I get the feeling that the Boulogne stuff was just for his ego. Well, pretty much. So, I mean, he isn't really even involved in the Battle of the Spurs. And, yeah, as we say Boulogne, I mean, he had to be lifted onto his horse by a crane. What? He was so big and fat at that point. That's so humiliating. And uh, Spain made peace with France on the day it fell, so quite quickly France then besieged it back. Mm-hmm. And it ends up back in French hands. Perfect. Doesn't really come to anything. He's really Europe's third man. France and Spain are the dominant forces, always undermining him with various treaties. He even loses to Francis I of France at wrestling. Oh, yes. Field yeah, of yeah. Gold. And he's quite indecisive. 1522, his friend Charles Brandon got within 50 miles of Paris, but didn't have enough support, had to mm-hmm. retreat. And uh, failed to invade France when Spain briefly imprisoned King Francis. Wait, so just, he missed his opportunity to Yeah, do if he'd gone straight in, you imagine, like, Athelstan, mm. Edward IV, they thought, right, this is the chance, boom, finish yeah. it. Yeah. He doesn't. And similarly, after Solway Moss in Scotland, Mary, Queen of Scots, was only a week old um, after this battle, and she became queen. Mm. And if he'd gone in, taken control of Mary, you know, he could have had dominance of Scotland. Instead, yeah. she escapes to France. Yeah. Opportunity missed. The greatest victory was the Battle of Flodden, in which James IV, King of Scotland, and lots of his nobles are killed. Unfortunately for Henry, it happens in 1513, when he's doing not very much in France. <laughs> so Catherine of Aragon raises the army, uh, and the Duke of Norfolk wins the battle. Oh dear. Catherine of Aragon, who he ultimately divorces yes. too. Brilliant. However, Henry's probably better than Charles II. I, I don't want to hear anything said against him. The best I can say for Charles is that uh, with his marriage to Catherine of Braganza, he gets Tangiers and Bombay. Now, that sounds like an amazing battle. Tell me more. Uh, he married her and she already had them. God, how did he survive? Uh, he was said to have branded a pistol defiantly in the enemy's direction at the Battle of Edge Hill. That's what we're after, her waving a pistol aloft. From quite a way away from yeah, the uh, actual. Yeah, quite right. And at the Battle of Worcester, apparently he showed some leadership qualities to inspire his men. His certificate showing leadership qualities. Yes. <laughs> Other than that, uh, he never really fought in the English Civil War, defeated very decisively by Cromwell at Worcester, and he has to flee. You know, his talents lie in other places, and I said I wouldn't be biased, so, you know, let's, let's see how he compares. What's he got? One. <laughs> Okay. Edward okay. IV, of course, to get his throne back when he was deposed, fights Warwick the Kingmaker at Barnet in thick fog, mm. and then charges off to Tewkesbury, where he defeats the Lancastrian a few weeks later. Charles is invited back after protracted negotiations. Are you sure there isn't a zero missing? I'm pretty here? sure 
It's not so good. Also, the Dutch wars failed to seize the Dutch East Indies fleet. De Reuter sailed up the Medway, captured the English flagship, and sunk the rest. Yeah, but they, need, they needed new ships. They did, a, they did us a favour. But you could say he was the, the father of modern guerrilla warfare. He escaped across England, even had a bit of time for sightseeing, you know, disguises... He's a spygram. It's a different kind of battleness. I mean, Alfred the Great did sort of guerrilla stuff when he was in the marshlands, of course, where he was yeah, carefully being hidden, stealing, making raids. Charles doesn't actually fight anyone. He just runs away. Charles is working on the perfect disguise. Alfred's baking, right? Yeah. This is... I, I, mm. Also, of course, Louis Fourteenth is by far the dominant figure in Europe at this time. Charles is effectively a vassal of yeah, uh, the King of France. All right, well, I'll so give you that. It's when it comes pretty. to battling us, I mean, we can say Charles II is pretty rubbish at battle. He doesn't have any success there, really. No. Henry VIII, he has a little bit of ego massaging, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Henry VIII just um, has all the gear and no idea. He plays the part, doesn't yeah. he? Henry I. Henry I is very capable. He's first yeah. one, he's good, and he does what he needs to do. He's a really awkward one. But he doesn't actually go... He's kind of like Edgar the Peaceable, dare we mention his name got criticised for not actually going beyond having a strong position. He didn't try and do anything more with it. Yeah. And that's kind of where Henry is. He's very good. If he had to fight, he'd probably be pretty good. It's like quiet power he's got. Yeah. They know that he can do it, and he does it when necessary. It, he just needed a big battle in this, really, to mm. compete with these top three. Yeah, so Alfred, Athelstan, and Edward IV are the most successful battle ones. Mm-hmm. Alfred's got a very different context because he's coming from an incredibly weak position. Yeah. But does so successfully. And he's got the Battle of Helm's Deep. I mean, I'll give him that. That sounded great. And it does save the country, the language. All oh, this business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it's... I don't know. I just can't... He doesn't capture me, Alfred. Okay, so it is just battliness. Yeah. Athelstan, epic. I, don't, I mean, I actually prefer, if I'm honest... Henry the first to Alfred. But what battliness has Henry the first got at all to compare with saving the country it, from the Vikings, establishing an entirely new system of defence uh, yeah, that puts he's, them off? He's saving his position, isn't he, rather than the country? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I do like that Burr system. Mm. And Alfred is, you know, he's in the thick of the fighting the shield walls where they're grouped together, fighting for hours. Yeah, I don't know what I've got. Real, I don't know what my beef is with this. But Athelstan and Edward IV are the two really dominant ones. I think Athelstan probably has to count as the biggie for battling this because yeah. he's just yeah, he's unblemished. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Hen- Edward IV. And, uh, but he does get kicked he out. He gets kicked out, yeah. But ultimately, hmm. he wins every battle at least. Yeah. Avoids the tricky ones that he might lose. <laughs> yeah. I can see... Uh, maybe there's an upset coming from my point of view, mm. but who knows? Shall we move on to scandal? Yeah. yeah. Scandal! So, in this one, we see a bit of reversal in fortune for some of them. Mm. Alfred, very little scandal. Yeah, that's probably why I don't like him. He had a bit of a hang up about carnal lust. He did. Possibly quite highly sex in his youth, mm. and feared that an illness that he suffered, which was probably Crohn's disease, but he thought it was a punishment from God. All suggest that there's something going on, that he's got mm. such an obsession with it. Mm. But he was thought to have been largely chased as king. And he actually prayed for painful diseases to inhibit his carnal what? desires. That's bizarre. So, scandal-wise, Alfred, not so thumbs down. Athelstan is a little bit better, but it's still not quite as no. juicy as you might like. Um, Elfweard was his next eldest brother. 
mm. and had probably been named joint king in Wessex by Edward the Elder. Yeah. Conveniently, a few weeks after Edward died, so did Elfweard. Really? Mm. Ooh. How convenient are we talking? Well, it makes it a lot easier for Athelstan to become king. Uh, the next eldest brother after Elfweard was Edwin, um, who was probably favoured in Wessex. Right. In 933, he was sent into exile by Athelstan, and conveniently, the boat appears to have been riddled with holes, <laughs> and he drowned at sea. No. That's dark. But Edwin, to be fair to him, had been involved in a plot to blind Athelstan before his coronation, <laughs> right. okay. and probably implicated another plot in 933, so it's not that. Yeah, what was with all the blinding then? I'd forgotten about that. They loved the blinding. And blinding yeah. He was actually thought to have remained celibate as king, to avoid having any sons, so that there'd be no oh, yeah. question mark that the next person in line was his half-brother Edmund. Certainly he never marries. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a bit of murder there kind of understandable in a way. It's just the slightly murky way in which it happens. Yeah. It's all suspicious rather than... Yeah. Henry I, despite being this quite cautious, mm-hmm. quite calculated chap, he was actually not too bad for scandal. Really? Yeah, well, we had the death of William Rufus. Oh, yeah, of course. Very yeah. conveniently uh, shot accidentally by Walter Tyrrell in the New Forest while hunting. Henry was in the hunting party. Mm. And uh, while the other nobles are running off to secure their lands, Henry acts with indecent haste, <laughs> rushing to Winchester and becoming king. So it all seems quite calculated. He yeah. seems to know exactly what to do. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't even stop to pick up the body. No. <laughs> His wife, Matilda of Scotland, um, had apparently been educated at Romsey Abbey and forced to wear a veil. So there was the suggestion that technically she should be counted as a nun. So what's the problem there? Well, that he was technically married marrying to a, nun. a nun, which isn't really Did they have any children? Uh, well, she's his queen, yeah. She doesn't sound like a nun to me. <laughs> <laughs> he also was said to have been avidly heterosexual, <laughs> a walking baby boom with a bevy of mistresses. Good stuff. Here Somewhere we go. between 20 and 24 illegitimate children, which is a record for all of the monarchs. Really? Yeah. I presumed it was more Charlie. Wow, that's great. I mean, technically, Rufus, it was convenient, but actually, if that happens, even if you've got nothing to do with it, getting to the tradition of becoming king, that is the most logical response. Yeah. That's what you would do. Yeah. So he may not have been involved. Matilda, his wife, um, his Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, held an ecclesiastical court and ruled that she hadn't been a nun and he said so in the pulpit at the start of the service, just as a slightly <laughs> in the atmosphere. Here, she's not a nun. Decide yourselves. But she's not a nun! And uh, Anselm's biographer, Eadma, said there was no ground on which anyone could possibly raise any scandal. <laughs> I beg to differ. What was his score? 15.5. Love it. Very well, that's only third of the group, though. Only third of the group. It's a good group for scandal, this one. Mm. And Edward IV, in particular... He did some scandalous stuff. Oh, yeah. First of all, we had the marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. Mm, yeah. Uh, she contrived a meeting, refused to be his mistress, so consumed with love, stroke, lust, mm-hmm. uh, Edward marries her. Mm. Actually, completely unsuitable. She's an older woman, a Lancastrian widow, already got children, <laughs> causes a huge rift with Warwick and leads ultimately to Edward's temporary deposition. Yeah. More warfare, Warwick's death. Yeah. Uh, there are executions. Lovely. Henry VI is put to sleep. Jolly good. Had been promised safe protection. And his own brother, Clarence, is executed. By what means? Uh, well, allegedly drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, what a nice way to go. So, the previous king and one of his brothers. Yeah, that's, that's really scandalous. 
Um, and in terms of his general approach to life, um, one historian, Colin Richmond, has summarised it as heavy eating, heavy drinking, and heavy whoring. <laughs> uh, that's 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 almost the the, the perfect <laughs> formula for you need to put that in brackets times murder. That equals 20 scandal score. Uh, apparently in uh, food and drink, he, he loved it so much that he used to take an emetic so that he would be sick really? and allow himself to then eat even more food. Oh, that's like a definite eating disorder. It is, but it's an odd one because he's not being sick in some kind of like controlling of his body. And it's literally just so that he can it's stuff more pleasure. food in. He just yeah. wants to eat as much food as possible. Did Henry try that? I'm he didn't, but Edward did also like Henry end up rather fat. Yeah. The court was very risque. The chroniclers scandalised by the men wearing short doublets over tight hose, revealing shameful privy members. That is... They actually got it out. I'm not sure if they got it out if it was just very tight and bulging. Oh, right. Okay. Perhaps. Mm. It's a good look. And uh, according to Dominic Mancini, he was licentious in the extreme. He pursued with no discrimination the married and unmarried, the noble and lowly. He was said to have been something of a prolific... Yeah, a bit of a cat. Yeah, so, and um, Mrs. Woodville was fine with all this? Well, she has to put up with it, because it's mm. the medieval period, and mm. that is what the kings do. Um, in defence, Henry VI, he was hardened after the failures of the last decade. He had been deposed. He couldn't mm. really have a rival king all the time. Mm. And Clarence did keep on betraying him, being a bit treasonous. Yeah. So, you know, understandable yeah. in a way. Yeah, I mean, if we had have said someone, he killed someone that was trying to depose him... Fine, but it's just the fact that it's brother, it's brother and in a rather grisly way in wine. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, really, I mean, that's, I think that deserves perhaps a bit more than 16. Uh, no, but 16 is a pretty good score, but of course, I think we knew what was coming, and what was coming was the uh, walking scandal mountain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Six wives. Yeah, scandal, there we go. But the incredible thing, Catherine of Aragon was his wife from 1509 to 1533. Wow. That's. How so, 24 years. That he was married to Catherine how, of Aragon. How long after that divorce did he die? 14 years. And he fit in the other... Si- now, technically, body. Anne Boleyn uh, executed in 1536, and he married Catherine Parr in 1543, so he technically has five queens, or five wives, in seven years. You'd give up after a while, wouldn't you? <laughs> you wouldn't buy the little uh, ceremonial mugs. Uh, the divorce, of course, he breaks from the Church of Rome after almost a thousand years of Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, dissolves the monastery, suffers excommunication and rebellion with the Pilgrimage of Grace, executes some of his cardinals, Fisher and Thomas mm. More, all to get Anne Boleyn and to get his own way. And he didn't even like Anne Boleyn in the end. Well, yeah, so his executions, he executes um, his chief, Henry VII's chief finance ministers about a year after coming to the throne. Mm. And they were really good. They've set him up with loads yeah. of cash. Starts early. Uh, Yorkist rivals, including the 67-year-old Margaret Pole. Oh, dear. Uh, two of his wives, let's not forget <laughs> that, he executed shocking. two of his six wives. <laughs> I know that story inside and out, but it's still shocking. Two of his loyalist ministers in Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell. Yeah. And Thomas Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, was lucky to have died before his trial. Obviously, he might <laughs> yeah. have been the, uh, the hat He definitely trick. would have been, yeah. And he was a physical monster. His leg ulcer flared up after a jousting injury, oozed pus and foul smells. Oh, nice. uh, Shapwe described them as the worst legs in the world. <laughs> I've never seen worse legs. <laughs> Imagine that competition. Uh, he couldn't exercise, but he binged on red wine and red meat, so he ended up with a 54-inch waist and a 57-inch chest weighing 28 stone. That is Gross. In every sense of the word. The only thing for Henry against him, he was a bit of a prude, so unlike things like you see in the Tudors, he didn't actually enjoy outward displays of wanton behaviour. 
He's pretty wanton, though, wasn't he? Well, he, tell me he, he didn't wanton. have many mistresses. He was more of a serial monogamist. <laughs> serial monogamist, yeah. Very serial. Course, yeah. And oddly, five out of his six wives, he does actually marry for love. Yeah, because he was writing little poems and yeah. things. Uh, very similar in a way as also to Edward IV with the Elizabeth Woodville and Berlin. Both mm. cases, two, they fall in love, marry someone that they shouldn't, causes huge disruption yeah. to the country. Both fat. Yeah. And they both end up fat, both indulge quite terribly. I suppose the thing for Edward IV is that it just causes a little bit of internal conflict. Mm. But whereas Henry VIII, he breaks, he changes the entire religion of the country... And we're still feeling the repercussions. Yeah. Uh, Henry, of course, 20 out of 20, the perfect school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Charles II was pretty good at this as well. This is oh, where yes. really pretty much all of his points came <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, John Wilmot described him as saying, Restless he rolls from whore to whore, a merry monarch, scandalous and poor. <laughs> Lots of mistresses, noble ladies like Barbara Villiers, some French Catholics from Louis XIV's court, and common actresses like Mill Gwynn. Oh, yeah, yeah. David. Oh, so she said when she leaned out the coach? Um, oh, yes, because she was being pelted uh, and attacked. Her coach was attacked because they thought it was Catholic. Well, uh, it was Catholic. Uh, she said, fear not, good friends, I am the Protestant whore. <laughs> so it was just, it was totally well known. Oh, that's brilliant. Very much out in the open. Yeah. Uh, David Starkey said the only rigid thing about Charles II was his male member. He fathered at least 14 children by nine different mothers and more or less single-handedly repopulated the depleted <laughs> ranks of the English nobility. <laughs> Indeed, when Charles was once hailed as the father of his people, he laughed and said that he certainly had fathered a good many of them. <laughs> oh, come on. He's brilliant. Actually nicknamed Old Rowley after one of the stallions in the royal stud. <laughs> He's even criticised uh, because he enjoyed the company of women, even what? when business was being discussed. So he had this almost like a harem at court, just women all over the place, and uh, seen by many as being under the thumb of his women, including Louis Fourteenth. Right. That's I I mean that's great. I mean, it is just sex with him, isn't it? It is. Mm. It is. And it's and, and, and partying. And Lots partying, of partying, yeah, he brings Late back parties. parties. So there's good scandal in this group. Alfred doesn't really succeed there at all. No. Athelstan there's suspicion yeah. of murkiness, but Athelstan and Alfred just, just don't cut it, do they? Yeah. You'd have thought that a Saxon era would have been really scandalous. It's one of those, you know, maybe it's so long ago, maybe there was some stuff and mm. it just hasn't been recorded. The thing with someone like, from Edward IV onwards, really, every little thing, there'll mm. be someone recording it. Yeah. So we get all these anecdotes that we might not otherwise. Yeah. But Henry the First, Edward IV, Henry the Shelf, they've all done pretty well there. That's a tough group to, to split those. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the scores, Henry the First, 15.5, Edwin and Charles on 16. I mean, obviously Henry, perfect score. Mm. Henry the Eighth has had more significance to it. Yes. In terms of national and international and down the ages repercussions. Yeah, and they, that's that's what splits him from this Edward the Fourth. Yeah. Because actually, as you say, there's a good mirror mm. between them of their inappropriate marriage, murder, and, you know... They're, they're, the they're, fatness, the eating. Yeah. The yeah. problem for Edward Fourth and a lot of these things is, I think we said at the time, he's almost like a proto-Henry the Eighth. Mm. Henry VIII is like Edward IV plus. Yeah, yeah. Plus, totally. plus, by the end. <laughs> so Edward IV kind of he gets a bit in the shadows when you put him alongside Henry. Oh, big Who's your favourite scandal, though, do you think? Is it all Charles? Oh, or? No, this is a science here. <laughs> exact and, um, science. And so, I mean, clearly, Henry, it's still being felt today, the split from the yeah. church with the um, Irish troubles. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, he rules the roost, really, doesn't he? Subjectivity. This is where we really see Alfred 
Yeah. Coming to the fore. Mm. He is all about subjectivity. I can't I can't do him a disservice here. The challenge for him, of course, we'd had the Vikings plundering and then conquering. The fields have been untended, the trade and economy are ruined, law and order barely exists, the monasteries have been devastated, so learning in the country has mm. pretty much disappeared. He saves Anglo Saxon England and as I said the English language effectively by winning at Eddington. The Burrs, they're not just good for battliness, they're also good for subjectivity because after the Romans, towns pretty much abandoned yeah. England. Yeah, yeah. In these really small settlements. But the Burrs aren't just forts, they're market towns because they needed to be self-sustaining. Mm. So they produce food, they have an economy. Mm. Indeed, he actually designs the town layouts himself. Um, and primary among these, of course, is London. Yeah. So the Roman city Londinium and its walls have been abandoned, and the Vikings are kind of controlling a settlement called Ludenvik. But Alfred retakes the city of London in 886 and then refounds it, so he moves everybody back into the walled city and starts life off there again in Lundenburg. Mm. So, yeah, Alfred refounds the city of London. That's pretty good score then. His strategy, he believed England to recover, it needed learning, it needed education. So he headhunts scholars from all across Britain and Europe, demands that all of his officers and clerics become literate. Mm. So judges will lose their job if they're not able to read and write. And he himself, he believes that things need to be in the language of the people so they can understand it themselves. So he translates all of these great works from Latin into English. Really? So rather than getting the elite to learn Latin yeah. and then they can do it he wants it all to be in English so that everyone can understand it and everyone can benefit it and can learn from it I thought this was a King James thing and bear in mind he was illiterate in terms Saxon terms until his teenage years so in the last ten years of his life after he spent all that time fighting mm -hmm. he then learns Latin so that he can translate works into English that's li living by example isn't it that's yeah Amazing. And we actually get his voice because all the prefaces and things like that. Mm. Alfred goes off script pretty mm. much. He just puts his own views in and to, just writes a preface to everything. To have a king as an author, effectively a philosopher king, mm. very very rare. On the downside, if we do criticise him, he had Asser. What's that again? Asser was a Welsh biographer of Alfred's. Oh yeah, key source for yeah. the reign. And there's suspicion that he wrote with the zeal of the real rewarded. In other words, <laughs> nice. we know that Alfred's yeah. great because he tells us that he's great. Yeah, yeah. Is it all a bit too good to be true? Mm. Is mm. the question mark over Alfred. Yeah. History written by the winners, etc. Yeah. Is there any, are there any chronicles that say, you know, he was a bit rubbish, Burrs weren't his idea? There's no Welsh chronicles or anything that say a bit of a... Bit no, of I don't think there's anyone that really complains mm. about him too much. Um, there is unfinished business. As we said, England is not fully united. Edward the Elder still has to fight for his succession, so it's by no means finished. Yeah. Um, and it's still, it's a difficult period, the Viking Wars at the beginning and the end, heavy taxes and the birds are very demanding mm. on people in terms mm. of personal service. And this is a long time ago, it's the Saxon era, we still have slavery yeah. under the Saxons, witchcraft is punishable by death, um, hostages will be executed, criminals punished severely, Alfred, he's very pious, but he's also a hard and ruthless king, there's no way he would have survived against the Vikings if he was as whiter than white. Yeah, holy man. But a subjectivity, that's the best score in the group, mm. 17. Um, he's the best of, or joint best of all the Rex Factor winners. It is really good. The Burr system, the education, mm. and just setting up England. Yeah. I mean, that's fe he effectively is nation building. Yeah. And London. And London. Yeah. However, Athelstan's not too bad a chap himself. Mm -hmm. He rules over a much bigger territory than Alfred, of course, and all of his predecessors, so he has more advanced administration and much more systematic and national 
in its scope. And he does have control over what's going on uh, everywhere. So, for example, he ordered... Saxons, you recall, love their coins. Yeah, they love it. So he ordered one coinage over all the king's dominion and no one is to mint money except in a town. So this shows how much control he's got that he's doing this everywhere mm. and also how the economy is working enough that he feels he needs to be controlling... And it's safer in a town. Economic yeah. activity, yeah. Um, in terms of justice, his main preoccupation was with tackling theft. And indeed, he sort of helped to really introduce prison as a concept, oh, right. as a penalty, rather than just a prelude to being executed. <laughs> yeah. uh, but his, his nicest thing was changing the law so that uh, no one under the age of 15 could be executed. Oh, jolly good. He said, it seemed too cruel to him that a man should be killed so young or for so small an offence as he had learnt was being done. Mm. Yeah, that is that's that's jolly good. I mean, there's no there's no getting around that. He has preoccupation with uh, relief of the poor, providing alms. He was renowned as a religious benefactor. He was the first anointed king in English history at his coronation. So he actually has holy oil for the first time. Really, I mm. thought Alfred would have loved a bit of that. William Tyndale, interestingly, claimed to have read a translation of the Bible from Athelstan's period. William Tyndale? Tyndale is a 16th century English Bible. Right. He claimed that the Saxons had done it first, and that he was he had read a version. Oh, right. I'm not sure whether this actually happened or if he was just saying that to give precedent. Yeah. But so, oh, but to, to allow him to translate yeah. it. Yeah. But certainly we've seen Alfred translating work, so, mm. and Alfred is very the... religious-minded. So. Yeah. If they're thinking, what should I translate? Do there's um, comics or... <laughs> If they've gone for the Bible, yeah. Yeah, surely. So maybe the Bible. Cultural terms, he loved giving books as gifts, and he's very into his education. God, that's a generous gift at the time, isn't it? Uh, numerous poems written at courts. Um, some have speculated that it's not impossible that Beowulf may have originated from Alfred, uh, Athelstan's court. Maybe even him himself? Not him himself, but he patronised poets. OK, right. Th- there isn't really any evidence to say that it did, but Why it's not, not impossible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Basically. Um, he's also the first king portrayed in art, uh, presenting a book to St Cuthbert. We do not have anything of, of Alfred at all? No image of Alfred. Whether that's because it didn't exist or just because it's been lost, yeah. we don't know. But okay. Athelstan's the first one actually portrayed. He has great standing abroad, Athelstan. Ambassadors flock to his court. He's given holy relics like the holy lance that was said to have... Oh, uh, that's Jesus, up a lot. Uh, yeah. sword of Constantine. Foreign kings sent their sons to be fostered at his court. Oh, right. Married four of his sisters to leading European figures. Oh, a few. I'm glad you listened to your leading European figures. <laughs> no, yes. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I should have mentioned that in scandal, yeah. shouldn't I? Uh, the annals of Ulster on his death said that Athelstan, King of the English, died the roof tree of the honour of the Western world. Oh, right. So, so he really was, yeah. And what did we give him overall? 12.5? He was said to have expelled the native Britons from Exeter when he invaded Cornwall. Right. And, um, you know, we admire him for creating England, which is mm. great for battliness, but at the time you wouldn't have thought, ah, oh, finally we're all together. <laughs> yeah, England have been waiting for this. Uh, and like Alfred, it's difficult times, we've got slavery, we've got penalties, it's in Al- Athelstan's reign that we see written down in more detail the process of trial by ordeal. Oh. I mean, that was around the whole period they had this, but yeah. it's kind of, we've got a formal record of it. So he settled with prison, but then thought, actually, let's have a bit of ducking as well. If you want to put your hand on a red-hot poker, yeah. that's also yeah. fine. Okay. Take your pick. Prison, please. And like Alfred and Asser, we have William of Malmesbury, a Norman uh, scholar, but another key and biased source because Alfredstan was buried at Malmesbury. Right. William of Malmesbury was said to have been using a, uh, a Saxon biography, yeah. which William of Malmesbury had access to, 
but nobody's seen nobody's it. Nobody's seen it. Oh, it's, okay, it's like Joseph Plates. Oh, you know, it's he's, as you're right. It's um, standing on the shoulders of giants with Alfred, but mm. it it's not like he he drops the ball or loses that momentum. Yeah, he doesn't he's, go off partying or no, he's he's executing people. The pace is the same, and he's running with it. Mm. He did as much as he could in the time, it seems. Yeah, he wasn't there as long as Alfred, of course, yeah, in years. Yeah, very good. Henry I is also not too bad. Pro-Saxon. Yes, he marries them. Yeah, first Norman king to speak fluent English, and of course he was actually born in England. Yeah. In Selby, so he's a Yorkshireman. Oh, nice. Uh, married the great-granddaughter of Edmund Ironside. Mm. So that means that his line has Saxon blood in it again. Oh, nice, uniting. That's quite nice. Uh, during the investiture crisis, his bishop, Anselm, had been exiled by Rufus over a controversy about whether or not the king or the pope invests bishops right. and receives homage. Uh, but Henry, although he did also clash with Anselm, he was able to compromise, seize his right to invest, kept homage. I mean, by compromising, he was able to get rid of a potentially very tricky issue, which yeah. threatened to destabilise his reign. Yeah, he's all about stability. This yeah. He also is very into his education, set a trend for monarchs to be well-educated, so he's nicknamed Beauclerk. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he joked that an unlearned king was like a crowned ass. Mm, nice, funny man. Um, Rufus's court had been notorious for being very debauched. It marauded across the country, pillaging and nice harassing, shoes, you know, and, all sorts yeah. of things. Henry imposes severe penalties for looting and sexual harassment and discourages courtiers from extravagant dress and appearance. In government, unprecedented number of royal charters. We get the origins of the exchequer at this time, mm. auditing of uh, royal dues with pipe rolls. And as we said, he's strong, centralised government. He had itinerant justices that go around the mm. country. So he was also known as the Lion of Justice. And England itself is free from rebellion and war for the entire period. So that's 30 years of peace and stability. Yeah, that's really very good for subjectivity. Or Derek Vitalis said he always devotes himself until the end of his life to preserving peace. And William of Marsley said it was a peace such as no age remembers and his father himself was never able to effect. Yeah. I tell you why I just don't find it as exciting. I mean, obviously I'm mm. all about scandal, but, and it's good. It's very <laughs> good. Was it? It's uh, somehow beats Athelstan, which I can't understand, with 14.5 to Athelstan's 12.5. And particularly when we consider that uh, Henry was not without his flaws. Okay, right. Uh, he was a bit dull, if we compare yeah, him to the flamboyant it. Rufus. And he was mocked for his bookishness, even in hunting, which apparently turned into a rather joyless science. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like him. I quite like his <laughs> that. I definitely do that as well. But... Uh, he was also very cruel by modern standards. Personally defenestrated Conan at Rouen after that rebellion. Really? Took him up the tower and pushed him off. He was said to have shown mercy to Herbert the Chamberlain by only blinding and castrating him after a failed assassination attempt. They love... What? <laughs> Why do they do this blinding? 1125, a rise in forgeries of uh, coins led mm-hmm. to most of the English money is losing their right hands and being castrated. Oh, and so this chap's got a thing about the balls. Indeed. <laughs> his daughter, Julianne, an illegitimate daughter, attempted to kill Henry when he gave his consent for uh, her daughter to be blinded in return for his son-in-law having blinded a hostage. Oh, yeah, remember this. That's, that was really... Wow. Oddly, he's actually praised for upholding law and order. So this yeah. is the means that he does it by. So at the time, not considered that cruel. But, really, his grandchildren, right? Yeah. The biggie, though, really, his failing. And why I'm surprised we know he didn't give him a lower score for this is the succession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matilda, a daughter, the first ever proposed female succession. It needs to be watertight, but he marries her after an unpopular man, Geoffrey of Anjou, fails to bestow them with lands or castles, or give Matilda a role at court, so she's not there when he dies. Mm. Consequently, her cousin Stephen of Blois, like Henry I, rushes off 
takes the throne quickly mm. before she has a chance to react, and we have a 19-year civil war with the anarchy. I mean, so for all that Henry did, he did not get the succession right. But and he that got was everyone, his failing. Everyone agreed. Everyone agreed to Matilda, yeah. but, but he didn't have her in court, so maybe they couldn't see her. How did he get the throne? Yeah, yeah. He, so he knew he had to get it watertight, and he was too busy keeping his own power in order to let Matilda get any of it. Yeah. Consequently, it's all very well having 30 years of peace, but we then have 20 years of civil war. So it's 10 up on aggregate. <laughs> well, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe that's why he did so well. <laughs> Edward IV, mm-hmm. he does pretty well as well. Wars of the Roses, he re-establishes royal authority after Henry VI, mm-hmm. completely predominant in 1471. Unlike his father and Henry VI, he's a unifying figure mm-hmm. and quite popular as a king. He's also merciful, so he seeks reconciliation with the Lancastrians in 1461 and 1471, and bodies of victims like Warwick are given a decent burial. Oh, right. Whereas his own father had his head stuck on the spike of Micklegate, New oh, York. Nice. So, but he doesn't return the favour in that yeah. sense. He's much more lenient. And he had forgiven Clarence, his brother, quite a few times before executing him. So, you know, he's inclined <laughs> to forgive. Did, did Clarence like uh, whatever type of wine it was? Marmsey wine. Well, it's alleged that he requested it himself. Right. It may okay. also have been a joke at his expense because he yeah. drank a lot. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, royal finances have been in disarray before uh, before Edward came to the throne, but he tackles piracy, repays crown debts, invests in the wool trade, mm. and gets that pension from France, meaning the crown is actually solvent mm. after decades in the red. Serious decline in law and order. Again, Edward tackles this strong. Professionals do justice rather than corrupt sheriff. Um, he personally is involved in improving the business estate. Lots of warrants, letters, and petitions w- written in his hand and with further instructions. Right. So he does, you know, he does get involved yeah. in that sort of stuff. Lavishes money on palaces. Patronises William Caxton. So we have the first printed books in England yeah. and English, and a large library of illuminations. So what? What? Era, what dates this? This is fourteen. Uh, it's fourteen seventies. Okay. Early fourteen eighties. And who? What's his succession? Mike cut this out. But who's follows him? Well, the problem, of course, is that he's followed by Edward V, princes in the Tower. Yes, right. That's right. I knew there was a flaw there. Like Henry the First, um, we've seen Edward being complacent in the fourteen sixties, which led to him being deposed. Mm. You'd have thought this, the succession would have been right at the top of his list, given that. The thing is, the Woodvilles are unpopular with many of the nobles and it destabilised the country in the first place but even afterwards they remain unpopular whilst his brother Richard has got an independent power base in the north. And he's popular up there, isn't he? Popular up there and neither side trust each other. Mm. And Edward V, his young son, is brought up exclusively by the Woodfills, the maternal family. Mm. So Richard is named Lord Protector by Edward on his deathbed. Mm -hmm. So Edward obviously didn't think there was going to be any kind of problem. But in reality, Richard thought, well, as soon as Edward V comes of age... The Woodville's going to say, oh, you need to get rid of that, Ed, uh, that Richard, yeah. and he'll get executed, as previous regents had done. Yeah. And the Woodville's think, this guy's a bit shifty, we yeah. can't let him anywhere near. Edward V only lasts a few weeks and is usurped and disappears. I, I, yeah, that and that's pretty unprecedented for a king in such a strong position mm. with two sons. Mm. I, th- I can only put that down to Edward's failing, though, mm. to, to not see that coming, that... that by having them raised solely by the Woodbills mm. would cause this problem. But if he'd lived three more years, yeah, Edward himself was only in his forties, yeah. So he wouldn't have expected to have been dying while oh, he was still true. a teenager. So a few more years, it wouldn't have been an issue. Henry VIII, <laughs> not perhaps his strongest point, but he does have some virtues. Um, he was a bit of a Renaissance prince. Yeah, uh, understood Latin, spoke fluent French, debated theology with Thomas More and Erasmus. 
Mm. Fine sportsman, particularly loved jousting and tennis, of course. He composed music. Mm, sort not, of. not green sleeves, <laughs> but he did compose other things. Yeah. Passed time with good company. Builds more palaces than any other monarch and also enriches Wolsey's existing palaces. And those castles. Those castles as well. And things things like Hampton Court, St James's, Whitehall. Yeah. And he promotes very able new men like Wolsey, Moore and Cromwell, some of England's most effective administrators. And on promoted by merit rather than position. Exactly. Yeah. And he's quite wily as well, so they take the fall if everything yeah. goes wrong. And he's completely dominant. It's a slippery court with all these plots, but it's all below him. He's probably the most powerful and secure monarch in English history. Yeah. It's the absolute apex of royal power. Mm. Yeah. Click his fingers, someone gets killed. Exactly. Lots of money. And his legacy, the act of supremacy, the dissolution of the monasteries, it's a revolution, unparalleled change yeah. to the country's life. It's a real sort of stop and start again. Yeah. Parliament in its infancy, and he takes away the church's power, leaving just him. Yeah. That's amazing. On the downside, like Edward, very lazy doesn't like doing much governance. State papers had to be summarised or read to him. Uh, found writing tedious and painful and extensive delegation. Some have argued whether or not it was really the others, like Cromwell, that shaped events. In finances, he amassed a huge fortune, inherited a huge fortune from Henry VII, something like a million pounds just in cash. Right. Uh, he blew it all on 1513 campaigns in France, and then in 1520s the surplus was gone. Yeah, just for his ego, it's just it's a bit rubbish. Very extravagant. Went from twelve to fifty-five palaces. Had two thousand tapestries, and one of his jackets was the price of a farm. What? Wow! Wolsey and Cromwell apparently brought in more money than all their predecessors combined, <laughs> with taxes and of course the dissolution <laughs> of the monasteries. Yeah. Uh, but he still left the crown in debt. That's phenomenal. As a result of which, his successors much more reliant on Parliament for taxation. Yeah. So a hundred years later. Yeah, Civil War and the Republic. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, so you direct line between the two. Yeah. Uh, the Reformation, a sudden vault fast after a thousand years of Catholicism. It's not much fun for people. They're, everything they've believed in, yeah. they just have to change. Conveniently believe something else. Yeah. Or, yeah. or get killed. Cardinal Fisher and Moore are executed as a result of that. Monasteries have been the lifeblood of communities, and dissolution leads to destruction of libraries. Alfred and Athelstan. Alfred been in the news recently about his pelvis potentially being discovered. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Henry VIII that loses the bones of all the Saxon kings because of the Reformation. Yeah. Hospitals are run by monasteries. They get closed. We get lots of beggars and vagrants. Mm. All the result of this. And he's never very clear what his religious position is. He's not fully Protestant, but he's not entirely abandoned all Catholic elements. This is why the court is able to divide and rival sides who are both favoured accuse the others of being heretics. Um, and, of course, it's a tyranny. More nobles executed than any reign before or since. Wives, his closest ministers, courtiers are all at risk. If you fall from favour, you die, basically. <laughs> you don't just go into exile and disgrace, you will die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the procedure. He's kind of like an Ingress Nero or Starling, Ingress mm, real genuine yeah. tyrant. Yeah. Yeah, after being a Renaissance <coughs> prince, to genuine tyrant. Yeah. And finally, we have Charles II. Wee. Some pretty good stuff with Charles. Um, for him, it was quite challenging. Eleven years after his father had been executed and England had been a republic, mm. lots of tension still simmering under the surface. He offered pardon to all those who'd opposed him, except for the regicides. So only oh, yeah. nine are killed. The ones who signed the document. He signed yeah. the document. Um, he wanted a religious toleration, so he promised liberty to tender consciences, used his royal prerogative to suspend a thing called the Clarendon Code, uh, whereby there was sort of restrictions placed on dissenting beliefs. Mm. Um, and also freed about 700 Quakers. Also went to relief camps after the Great Fire of London in person and quelled hysteria around people thinking it was a Catholic plot. 
Theatres reopened with the restoration, of course, having been banned by the Puritans. Women allowed on stage for the first time. Notoriously bawdy comedies, which Charles encouraged. Christmas as well is he brought back. He actually brought back. I can't believe really Cromwell cancelled Christmas in the first place, but to bring it back, what a hero. Uh, very interested in science, so he confers uh, the charter on the Royal Society with people like Christopher Wren, Hook, Newton, Boyle mm. and Halley. Uh, also foundation of the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And he's quite fun, he's an affable chap. John Evelyn describes him as a prince of many virtues, many great imperfections, but debonair, easy of access, not bloody or cruel. Yeah, I love him. So his escape, of course, that yeah. great fun. He's the only monarch, as a result, to really experience the ordinary life of his subjects. Yeah. So he doesn't really have any airs or graces, but he's very witty, he's got a sense of fun, a sense of humour. Mm. Despite all of his mistresses, he's an oddly nice husband. Yeah, it was really sweet. Wasn't it? Cared for his wife, refused to divorce her when they didn't have any children, and as he said himself, considering my faultiness towards her, I think it a horrid thing to abandon her. Oh, he's lovely. Very lovely. And of course, we have the restoration. I mean, ultimately, he is successful. He dies in bed. His father was executed. His brother was exiled. But he sees through all of the challenges, the exclusion crisis, yeah. all of these threats. The monarchy is restored. Yeah. It could have. That could have been it with Charles. If he'd failed, the monarchy might have been yeah, gone for Surely. As a negative. Mm, I don't. I'm not listening. Despite his intentions, intolerant acts for religion were still passed, and the test acts prevailed. So you couldn't technically hold office if you were a mm. Catholic. Yeah. Quakers suffered terrible persecution and a brutal repression of Scottish Presbyterians. Mm. Really, really harsh. Parliament, he never really wins them over. Always suspected that he's an absolutist in the Louis XIV mould. Right. And there's kind of a sense that he possibly is. Like his father, he believes in the Supreme Right. Like yeah. his father. Indeed, his final years, he does rule without Parliament. Yeah. And his Whig rivals do get rather repressed. Mm. Of course, for us, that's us judging by modern Whig standards for Charles, he's trying to be a powerful king. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. And it's good stuff. It's not like he's using this lack of parliament to do mm. things that would cause a bad subject of his He's very lazy again. Yeah. Clarendon, his early advice, said that when anything is to be done by the king's own hand, we must sometimes be content to wait, he being brought very unwillingly to the work, which vexes me exceedingly. And the problem was, he's actually he's very intelligent and astute, Charles. He's very capable. But unless there's a crisis going on, you can't really be bothered to do it. Yeah, quite right. I mean, the, the, it's an incredible mirror with my work, I think. It's a sense that he could have done a lot more if he wanted to. Mm. It's quite a duplicitous character. Really? He's quite shady, so he's very cynical after his early experiences. He commented when he came back that so many people said they longed for his return. It must have been his own fault that he stayed away for so long. Clarendon was made a scapegoat for the Dutch Wars, despite having been loyal to him throughout his period of right. exile and the Restoration. The Treaty of Dover with Louis XIV in 1470, a secret treaty in which Charles pledged to restore England to Catholicism in return for a uh, French pension. And he got the French pension? He got the pension. Technically, he doesn't restore England yeah. to Catholicism, so you could say he was just doing yeah, a working. very successful double deal. Yeah. More likely, he's just playing everyone else off and seeing what he can get out of it, Yeah. whatever brings in the money. Well, I mean, it worked... There's one other thing which I have to admit, I, f- I missed this mm-hmm. when we did it the first time round, and it's, it's largely absent for a lot of the biographies. It does tend to get ignored, but it is a bit of a downer. Oh, don't. In 1660, along with James and various other people, he invested uh, in a company which had a monopoly on a certain trade to no. Africa. No. The slave trade. 
Oh, he was unblemished. It made about a million pounds in its first two years, and then in 1672 it was reformed with the, as the Royal African Company, so it had a royal charter. And 1689, by 1689, a few years after he died, something like 90,000 slaves had been transported from West Africa. So this is the start of English role in the slave trade. Well, I'm a bit in shock, um, and I don't want to play it down. <laughs> but... <laughs> Are we judging him by the standards of the time? It, it is still there. All the horrors of that yeah. entails. I mean, there's so all of the negative stuff, and to be <coughs> honest, the positive stuff is just trying to be religiously tolerant, tolerant of other religions, mm. and fails there in, in some regards. Survival, really, is Charles's main thing. Yeah. That's the main thing he's doing, and he needs money for that, mm. which is why the slave trade's good, because it's an awful lot of money. That's why he makes a deal with Louis Fourteenth. Because it's a lot of money. Yeah. So, I mean, in subjectivity terms, I think Alfred is kind of head and shoulders, really. Oh, yeah. In that group. Oh, yeah. And Athel sounds pretty pretty good. Henry, yes. But cruel. Edward IV, I mean, I, I, there's not much between them, I think, Edward yeah. and Henry. Yeah. Edward uh, IV did a pretty good job. A bit lazy, but generally when he did stuff, he did good yeah. stuff. And he did have order. It's just both of them, the succession for Henry and Edward. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of almost undermined generally by the fact that its chaos follows them. I'm surprised there's such a difference between Henry VIII and Charles II. Yeah, Henry VIII... Well, uh, Henry VIII was 7.5 and Charles was with 13. I mean, that was Charles before the slavery, and also, I mean, Henry VIII does... I mean, if you're a subject at the time... It's shocking, It's not it? very nice. No, it's <laughs> terrible. Terrible. I mean, and Charles really is just the science and the culture. Yeah. Um, and Henry had the, uh, had the culture with being a Renaissance yeah. prince. Yeah, there's not much separation in there. Henry is a tyrant, though. <laughs> I yeah, think that's yeah, really yeah, yeah. why he gets a low score. He is a tyrant. So it, it seems like there's a clear top three. Longevity. Not really anything to debate here, but in statistical uh, terms, I think we'll find that Henry VIII was the longest reigning, yeah. 37.75 years. Athelstan had the least time to get things done. Yeah. 15.25 years. Quite low overall, actually. They're not mm. very long reigning compared to some of the other ones. No. That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. 35 years. Yeah. Yeah, not very good. But they still got a, a hell of a lot done. <laughs> Can teach us all a thing or two. Dynasty! Not the programme. Well, Edward IV wins out in this group. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Seven, Seven legitimate children. And I can't believe Henry only won. After all that. Henry the First. Henry the First, yeah. Only one legitimate child. Incredible. And Charles, none, because he was very sweet to his wife, despite all the whoring. And other illegitimate children. Yeah. Athelstan, also a zero. Uh, Alfred did pretty well. Five children. Five surviving children for a Saxon. Yeah. That's no mean feat. Yeah, and that's that's while he's having all this issue in his head. Oh, uh, yeah. is this all right? And it's also quite funny, Henry the Eighth having three, because you assume all of these problems, that he, yeah. like, he doesn't have any children. Yeah, he's not used about... Kind of middling for the yeah, they just just girls. Ill, Ill boy and girls, blooming girls. I don't know. Of course, there's one more very important consideration. Yeah, Rex Factor. They all have it. They've all got it. But yeah, who is the Rexy of Rexies? Who's got it the most? Mm. In terms of scores, the top seed is uh, Edward the Fourth. Yep. Uh, followed by uh, Henry the First. Charles is the bottom seed. He's the seventeenth oh, out of eighteen overalls. But the thing is... But I mean, scores are yeah. all relative. We did yeah. them at different times. Exactly. I mean, to be honest, I think the point of this episode mm. is to judge them 
on this Rex Factor, which we've said isn't clear cut. It's mm. not a score based thing. It's if they have that certain something. Mm. And this is what we're ranking them on. So, yes, Charles may have a low score <laughs> in many areas, but does he have that certain something that perhaps Henry I didn't have? Mm. Or, you know, just an example, because I'm being completely unbiased here. So, well, in terms of what they do have, uh, for Alfred, um, something I noticed is really strong Second World War parallels. Oh, yeah? Because we've kind of got Wessex standing alone against the Vikings, mm. 1940-ish. Nice, yeah. We've got him being exiled to the marshes, facing almost total destruction, yeah. Dunkirk. Then he emerges with this crucial counter-attack. Nice. DA, yeah. And then builds a peace with Burrs and Education, so he's kind of got the NHS on top of it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, as I said, he's this philosopher king doing those incredible translations, this huge effort to really build a nation. Yeah. And that's why he's Alfred the Great. It's not just the mil- military stuff. He'd probably still get the rack factor. Yeah. But it's what he does afterwards. He actually builds a nation. And I think in the episode, or maybe a later episode, you had a nice thing. You said it's like when an old man build, plants an acorn. Yeah. He's never going to see the tree grow, but he's did thinking I say ahead. I think you did, yeah. See, uh, later on. Vol- involuntary wisdom of Alfred. <laughs> and he's killing Vikings while he's doing it. Yeah, stop with that. I'm trying to plant an acorn. <laughs> Doing some gardening. And he's the only monarch to be labelled as the great. The well, of military and uh, subjectivity success. So I think everyone will agree that he's renamed by historian Hood as Alfred the Sufficient. <laughs> and his, in his own words, oh. what I set out to do was to virtuously and justly administer the authority given me. To be brief, I may say that it has always been my wish to live honourably and after my death to leave to those who come after me my memory in good works. That's quite a noble mm. want. Uh, okay. But then Athelstan. The great. He's the man of first. He's the first king of all England. He's the first one represented in art. First anointed the coronation. Mm. Uh, first to intervene overseas. First called Athelstan. First called Athelstan. <laughs> and he's so dominant. Controls all of England. He dominates Britain. He's almost like the emperor of Britain. Yeah, he's brilliant. It's almost like God mode in a game. It's like he's yeah. cheating. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Great. Yeah. Recognise one of the great men of the time in Europe. And yeah, have, I mean, he's flawless. And then we have Brunenberg, that epic battle. Yeah, really good. Really good. The question, though, does he have that all-roundedness, that sort of the imagination and everything that Alfred does? To me, All yes. the innovation that Alfred does, founding a nation, saving the country from the Vikings, the Second World War stuff. Even Alfred actually has one of his um, birds, the ramparts, were used as tank anti-tank defence in 1940. Oh, don't. That really gets me excited. That's fantastic. Athelstan is amazing and powerful, but is it a bit one-dimensional in comparison? I know know I've got a real chip on my shoulder about Alfred, (laughs) Um, but it's all stuff that I feel should have been forgotten and being rediscovered, and... And because of all these firsts of Athelstan, he should be Athelstan the Great. And everyone go, whoa, 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 you think Athelstan good? Check out Alfred, <laughs> he's not so well known. But it's the other way around and it annoys me. Henry I. He's yep. very clever, very cunning. He's very much the sense of a man with a plan mm. in all that he's doing. It's always quite calculated, his actions, always outwitting his rivals. He compromises, he governs intelligently, he rules for a really long period. And he's probably the most powerful of the Norman kings. He's more stable and secure than William the Conqueror. Yeah, yeah. Which is no mean feat. He's the first of the king of that ilk that's just cunning, diplomatic, stable, good king. He's not just running around with a sword no, all no, the he's, time, he's absent-mindedly, got, actually. Yeah, he's really he got a head on his shoulders, this one. Yeah. 
I struggle a bit with Henry the First to get okay. as excited about him. Yeah, where's the shiny bits of twinkle dust? Yeah, it's a successful reign. It's brilliant. Very successful. Brilliant. I mean, Henry the First, boom, great king, yeah. tick. Yeah. Actually, that and doesn't really have the flaws of some of these other ones that we're saying does have the twinkly dust. Yeah. Mm. So Edward the Fourth. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff here. We've got all these big medieval battles, mm. which is always successful. Personally, fighting quite heroically. Towton, Barnet, Tewkesbury. Yeah. He survives uh-huh. Wars of the Roses. His grandfather, father, and two of his brothers end up being executed. His sons are probably killed. Richard the Third killed at Bosworth. Oh yeah, sons as well. Gosh. He dies in bed. Yeah. Edward the Fourth. That's no mean feat. No. Uh, he restores the government after all that stuff in the Wars of the Roses. He's also pretty hot. <laughs> Before he gets really fat, six foot three in height, England's yeah. tallest monarch, golden brown hair. Uh, Polydor Virgil described him being of comely visage, pleasant look, and broad-breasted. Yeah, because you think all those battles so, he's fighting, he's going to be strong, yeah. muscular. Great film. I said on the WordPress site, little plug there. Can even if it's easy for Hollywood, they can even get someone with perfect teeth to play him. Yeah, and he takes all the boxes. We got war, romance, political intrigue, deposition, restoration, triumph, and tragedy. Yeah, it's it's great. It, it would make an awesome film, and although that's not what we're specifically looking for, it does mean that he he's like today's uh, film stars, which mm. is a bit Rex Factory. Yeah, it'd be it, it makes the perfect film. It'd be played by a film star easily. He has got a bit of. He's, I mean, obviously he's got Rex Factory. He's won it, but he's really got that star quality. Mm. The only thing which really brings him down, well, two things bring him down. One is the sense that because of what happens after him. He, he, I mean, he gets forgotten. He's a forgotten monarch mm. in many ways. He was certainly wasn't one I was expecting yeah. to be um, a Rex Factor winner before we started this. I don't really know anything about him particularly. Yeah, and that's partly his failure to get the, his failings with the succession, the princes in the tower, Richard the Third, Bosworth, all such a big change that Edward the Fourth reign almost somehow immediately became irrelevant after he died. It almost yeah. like everything he achieved and did. Wiped in. Didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. And of course, he's followed by Henry VIII. Yeah. Who, as he said, was kind of like him, but much more Double so. Charge. He's definitely got the star quality, the defining image, really, of the English monarchy. Yeah. If we were to, Rex Factor were to be a book, and we would say, oh, we're going to do a collage of all the monarchs and do it in a clever way in the load, yeah. and say, yeah, 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 we're probably just going to put Henry VIII in the front. <laughs> yeah. Of that, that's and, what we'll sell. And of all those images, that Holbein image with him with his hand on his hips. Cod piece out. Yeah, I mean that's that is it, isn't it? That is Rex Factor in a way, isn't yeah. it? He is almost he designed for it. Almost don't need to say anything else. <laughs> it's yeah. that's 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 a, that's the definition of an English king. It's an English king at the height of his power, of mm. its power. And he's he's so proper. Goes way beyond Edward the Fourth. So proper with Anne Boleyn, the Reformation, the divorce, all of that sort of stuff. Huge turning point in English history of the Reformation. It really is a before and after, mm, mm. unlike any other king before. That's this turning point. And I mean, I'm not a big Henry VIII fan. I just see him as a bit of a vain tyrant. Mm. But um, <laughs> but it is it is Rex facto. Yeah. It, that's what people look for. The tourists go to Hampton Court just exactly. for Henry VIII stuff. And he's weirdly relatable in a funny kind of way mm. for a tyrant. Because <laughs> medieval monarchs sometimes they're a bit cold. You yeah. can't really see a person, so it's almost like statues yeah, doing yeah, things. Nice. It's not real people. Yeah. But Henry, he's huge character. He's got fears, insecurities, desires, huge ego. Yeah. Of all the monarchs, he's the one with the most want to win Rex Factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he loves it. <laughs> he would, wouldn't he? Yeah. Midlife crisis, marries for love. Yeah. 
It's all there. It's all there. Yeah. And finally, Charles II. Come on. What more do you need? We've got the escape from uh, Worcester, that it's great story. Incredible. If you please listen to that one. The escape's amazing. Restoration could have been the last gasp of the monarchy, but he finds a way to survive. Yeah, I mean, he, the, his achievement is surviving, isn't it? Yeah. That's what he does. It was a great experiment, and he, through personality, made it work. And he's got star quality. He's witty, fun-loving, engaging. Yeah, he's, he's the king of the time. Henry VIII's sort of late... Well, start of modern. Yeah, early modern. Early modern, and you can you've got you've got an image of that era with his codpiece, etc. Mm. Charles II with his wigs. Yeah, and all of that period is is so Charles mm. flamboyant court. He just defines that era for me. Mm. Is he a bit lightweight when we compare him to Henry VIII, to the Saxons, to Edward IV? Yeah, he didn't have... Is he 17th out of 18 for a reason? <laughs> I mean, in, I mean, he's not yeah. the 17th ranked monarch score-wise. I mean, he's, yeah. he's somewhere in the middle in terms mm. of his score. It's quite a low score. but And low for Rex Fed winner overall. Yeah. yeah. Um, but all he could do was survive. And he just he just had fun. That was all he could do was make sure it was a fun time. For his, although succession was bad as well, actually. He's not the only one who has to survive, though. Think of where, at one point, all of England is just a marshland in the Somerset levels. Yeah, and yeah. the Vikings were all over the place. You've got Edward IV and the Wars of the Roses. Yes. And he's deposed at one point. He has to fight in all these battles to get his kingdom Yeah, back. I suppose it's a different kind of survival, isn't it? It's yeah. just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just um, <laughs> j- Yeah, it's just the idea. He's letting the idea of monarchy survive. Hmm. Um, and he managed to have an awesome time. And he's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but how does he compare to the others, do you think? Well, when you put him alongside them. I don't want to bias or of lead anyone. But it seems that if we're looking for that something, yes, it's a low score. But it doesn't really matter now. We're looking for the Rex factor. And I think he has that in droves over Henry I. Oh, it's difficult because of just how I said how Edward IV was the forgotten king. Alfred and Athelstan, yeah. If you're going to have a Saxon one, it's going to be hard to split mm. those guys up. Is there a sense with Charles in which we're in danger of the sort of horrible histories King he brought back parting? We sort mm. of, we take the bit that we like, which is Charles the man, yeah. and we ignore a quite a duplicitous monarch who's making these secret treaties, having lots of conflicts and difficulties with Parliament, initiating the slave trade... <laughs> You know, we're yes. picking the fun bits and we're mm-hmm. ignoring anything that we don't like. Yeah. I, I've got an idea of how I'm going to vote. Well, it, I think it is voting time now. Now, Ali and I are going to vote in secret. You, when you listen to this, will be able to vote on... Um, well, there'll be a link on the rexfactor.wordpress.com website. As I say, we'll put it up everywhere else as well. But Ali and I... Yeah. got... Uh, oh, lovely. Right Little voting cards. Okay, order. I'm going to do it. This is so <laughs> difficult. I'm on number three. Because you know that three of these... Yeah, they're going to go. This is For three of them, this is their last ever episode. Oh, gosh. Okay, okay. Um, this is I'm great done. radio here. I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not done, I'm not done. I'm not, uh, Nine. The envelope. Uh, um, Sealed. I have voted. Oh, Corey, I am... Um, I feel I feel a pressure <laughs> to put a, a, to keep a certain 
din- era or dynasty in there. <laughs> but they can't. I can't. You're um, going to think that perhaps I've done this tactically, but I haven't. <laughs> this is just. This is just to ensure. This is how I feel. Their Rex factor. Oh, I don't, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. This is. This is. This is. Oh, it's big. We okay, both big. voted, but we put them into envelopes. Sealed envelopes. Sealed. We won't open them again until the results episode. Yeah. Okay. So, that's it for Group A. Vote. Please, please vote. Even if you've never emailed us, contacted us in any way, even when Ali was ill and you thought, nah, This is boring that. now, yeah. This is what it's all about. This has all been about. Please, please vote. We want as many people as possible to vote. When is voting open? Voting will be open when you listen to it. Okay. Voting is open. Vote. And the surveys will all close at the end of March, 31st of March. Yes. So you've got to do it before April. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Uh, that's clear. Goodbye from me. Cheerio. <laughs>